I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cupper. And this is Constellation, making the graphic novel. Join us as we build an original science fiction world. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Constellation podcast. Ted, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, John? I'm good. And we successfully wrapped up the outline, the main story uh, with last episode. And so now we're going to address these things we've been calling interstitials. Right. So we've decided to put some extra stories in interspersed throughout our main story, partially to give us something to cut away to and and, um, uh, allow time to pass in the story, but also to um, expand the world and tell you a little bit more about uh, what's going on in this big constellation beyond just uh, what we can show naturally um, in the story it's in the linear story that we're telling yeah so there's gonna be like these punctuated uh moments throughout the story where it's sort of interrupted by i don't know how many pages you think these would be maybe somewhere in the ballpark of like four to six yeah in my my mind it's like four to eight but yeah it's like a relatively small number of pages a kind of pithy little story maybe it's a little bit puzzling while you're reading it you don't quite understand how it connects but then later uh, some concept that's in it maybe pops up or it's just thematically relevant in some way or it's a history of something that we're going to later see the present of, something like that. Bas- yeah, it's also a way for us to, you know, we built this world, right? And there's some interesting corners of it. So we want we want to share them if we can. Right. Um, I mean, if there's no connection to the main storyline at all, and we'll probably talk about some of our ideas that are a little more like that, it becomes a little harder to justify but I also think, you know, a certain amount of just fleshing out the world makes sense because in some ways, as we've talked about, the world is in a way the main character of this book, really. I mean, we have like a whole story with a twist and everything, and that's obviously got to be solid as we can possibly make it. But one of the things that's very interesting to us is the way this world works. Right. It's one of the more unique features of this story um, is that it's set in this kind of simulated world that's unusual and we want to really explore it. And, you know, we're not a hundred percent sure that we want to do additional pieces of art that are set in this constellation world besides this one book that we're talking about, but it's not out of the question. We, we had discussed that to some extent that there might be reason to have a larger universe here, like uh, to do other kinds of stories or to do other kinds of media. I do kind of feel that if we were established uh, comic authors in the industry that it might be the case that, you know, or for some reason we had a huge budget to do a TV show, right? And these sort of imaginary circumstances mm-hmm. that it might be the ideal form even of this idea to do it as a truly serialized thing. Uh, but, but given our resources, <laughs> it doesn't really make sense to think like that. Um, and I also do enjoy books that are one-offs that really feel bigger than they ought to be. Um, so, you know, that's, I think the route that just makes more sense for us, right. Is to try to pack as much of our world into one book as we can with the assumption that there's not going to be any follow-ups. Right. Uh, But then also that there's a lot of material to use to spin off from if any such opportunities were to come up. But yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so these are the sequence, these are the ones that we've thought of so far and we're not marrying ourselves to any of these and we're also going to probably uh pitch them in like an order that's 
different from the this way that we would order present them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely different from how they'll appear in the book and sort of a random order. What um, we have is a pool, right? We have we have nine of them. Yes. Uh, but we don't even have that many slots, right? That's so right. I think right now we're stuck between six and seven slots. So that's going to make this episode differ again from the last two. We knew what we were going to be saying pretty pretty thoroughly, right? We had an outline with... You know, there's definitely parts of that outline, too, that are fuzzy or gaps that need to be filled in. Um, but I'd say today is going to be a lot looser because, again, we have concepts for these interstitials. We A lot of them, um, we have some good ideas about what happens in them, but we don't know which ones we're picking. We don't know how they're ordering them and so on. Yeah, some of them we don't know what we're framing them as and we don't know exactly. Yeah. So anyway, we're going to go through them right now and we will sort of list them and riff on them and hopefully we can figure out some of this stuff together. Um, and we'll probably be working on these forever because the the, the nature of these is that they are s- at least somewhat um, tangential to what's going on. And as a result, they can be... Um, sort of endlessly tweet uh to be um, oh they don't have that uh that like domino quality that a lot of writing has exactly right, that makes writing so difficult uh, where pulling you threads right is a phrase i've heard for yeah, that yeah. right so you know sometimes when you try to fix something in a longer piece that you've been working on you realize that it causes problems elsewhere you're relying on this thing that you now don't like in other parts of your plot and so you start pulling threads in the uh the, the fabric of the piece that you're working on i think these don't have that issue these are these yeah. are um decorative pieces in a way and they can they can sit on top of of the larger structure uh, For so people like, that uh, program stuff, they're sort of modular, right? They're right. Sort of these, That's a like, good siloed, isolated pieces of data that we can we can change at will without breaking the whole story. Exactly. So that's a that's a good metaphor. So all right, so let's jump into these. So the first one uh, that we're going to talk about today is one that we mentioned a couple of episodes ago. Um, and ironically, this one, we're not even totally sure will be an interstitial, but I think we should talk about it anyway, uh, because it's really critical to just like the world, which is the founding of Altaf, the club that uh, is obsessed with novelty that our main character, Timito, really wants to join. And Yeah, and Altaf very much drives our whole narrative. So right. that's why this is, I mean, we're going to get this in somewhere. Just, uh, I mean, the place that we talked about, it might also go if it's not an interstitial, is there's a moment when uh, Saba, who represents the club, is pitching Tim and Zoya on this idea of this third trial, right, at a at an expensive dinner in Magnervia. Right. Right. Um, so that's an opportunity for him to tell some of the the myths of the club of Altaf. Um, because this sort of has a mythic quality, this story. Right. Um, and it's about the founder, uh, you know, who's again sort of and and you know, that because it's mythic, you know, maybe this is totally true. Uh, or maybe, maybe it's, it's totally a, apocryphal, right? Like, yeah, we're yeah, not totally be, sure yet. It could be made up or it could be, you know, embellished to make this guy seem cool because really, as you're going to see, there are no witnesses except for the person telling the story. So let's talk about who this guy is and where he comes from because we had come up with this idea of there being a sort of prior group to Altaf. Before Altaf ever existed, there was uh, another club and this club was a club dedicated to randomness. So we called them the Stochastics. 
That's right. Uh, they, you know, again, as we've talked about in the constellation, you've got to make meaning um, in a world where you have access to almost anything that you want. So, right. one of the ways we imagine people might make me- meaning is sort of giving up all that choice. Right? That's such a burden in a way to choose what you want all the time and to have such power. So maybe you give up that choice to say a random uh, generation of some kind, and that's what these people were obsessed with, and so they. Their their innovation before our, our founding tale starts was that right. they decided at one point, because maybe this club had been going for a while before this point, mm-hmm. but at one point, one of them suggested, let's make this pact, you know, to really commit to this idea of randomness, right? where we're going to agree to go to completely randomly generated worlds where all aspects of them, you know, maybe within some parameters, I'm sure, but um, there's nothing to prevent these worlds from being... Uh, deadly or having hunger or not having regeneration turned on. Right. Um, but it's not that those things are certain. They're just they're just weighted with a probability and thrown into the mix with everything else. Yeah. The worlds could be very boring. Like, it's basically like Russian it. roulette, but like... That's exactly it. Apply, it's Russian applied roulette. to every detail of life. So like, you know, just every aspect of the world, you're kind of, you're rolling the dice to see if it's something fine or wonderful or deadly or awful. And so they they decide to do this. They decide, they all go in on it and they decide they're going to spend two weeks at a time in a randomly generated world and they set up the machine to do the random generation and they jump into the first world. That's right. And we... There's specifics that we don't have here, but the the big picture here is that this is going to be relatively uneventful. The first right? world, yeah, they they get there and you know the the cards came up boring. Basically, it's like you spun the thing and it went click. You know, no bullet. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe so, there's some weird things happening, but it's relatively safe, and maybe it's just overall kind of boring. Right, right. Uh, but they stick it so, out. They do their two weeks. Yeah, I mean, again, this is part of the idea. People are not are they're committed to this idea so far, right? And then, of course, they, they spin it's time for the spin wheel number two, yeah, again. And the second one is like worst case scenario, right? They teleport into this hellscape. They're just dumped into this terror zone where there's some kind of horrific monster, and it's like mating season or something, and they are just instantly attacked in the most brutal way. Several of them die. And then several others chicken out and bail out of the world. Right. And the only one who sticks it out is who becomes the eventual founder of Altoff. Right. So this, you know, very committed individual decides, I'm going to stay the two weeks no matter what. Somehow manages to evade the, the roaming monsters and the lightning bolts and the other terrors that are raining down from the sky. God right. knows what. And one of his main strategies for avoiding them is that he basically hides in a pit. Like he finds himself wedged in this tiny area, and if he just doesn't move, he can stay alive. That's right. Yeah, he manages to find a, a hiding spot that he can that he can hang out in, um, and he's there for the full two weeks. So some other weird stuff might happen in there. He might have to kill some local life form and eat it or something to sure. stay alive. It's one of these like sort of grisly like survival stories really where but a lot of it is just spent in this pit (laughs) right it's just like a kind of brutal i don't know i'm thinking like a there will be blood type you know just survival story of this like sort of nasty guy who gets in this terrible situation due to his own principles and just decides to fucking stick it out and uh like 
you know, goes through this this hell of just staring at this, you know, this tiny inside of this pit while all this like nastiness happens around him. And we like this idea that in the pit are like some engraved words, right? And that one of the words that he can see while he's like sort of staring at the wall of this pit is the word Altov. And of course, this world is randomly generated. So why are there words in the pits? It's probably just part of the weird algorithm, right? I right. Mean, it was just no... sampled from like the world's, you know, the world's archives in some random way. Yeah. But it, you know, as he's sitting there staring at that, you know, you know, ferociously committed to his ideology for the two weeks, that that word just leaves an impression. You're right. It becomes kind of a mantra or something for him. You know, this word that kind of means, I think it means always, right? And it means always, yeah. Yeah, in, in some Nordic language, I can't remember which one. Um, and so he's just staring at that word always, and he's thinking about his commitments, and he's thinking about his commitment to, you know, uh, what had been randomness, but I think, you know, what he's what he's realizing in this moment is what he's really committed to is novelty. And that's going to be the sort of central insight of the Altov group, which he then founds upon uh, escaping this world. Um, and then like, there's one more part of this story, which I don't know how we're going to present it because we just kind of started th- thinking about it today. But once he escapes, that's not the origin of the club. That's the origin of the founder of the club. But and it's the death of the stochastics. It's the death clearly. of stochastics because they all fled or died. And the, the one remaining stochastic is our founder. And so he's going to come out and start a new club. And that club is going to be the Altaf Club. So we have to show him getting his new members as well and um, instituting the practice of the secret invitation, right? Because I think that's the thing that carries on to this day. So he goes to some place. He finds the most impressive person there. And he secretly invites them to the club and provide, you know, gives them the option of doing the three trials and joining the club. And once that, you know, once that sequence begins, I think we can guess sort of where it ends because we're seeing it um, in in the in the modern day. Uh, but we want to know that he, you know, went around and sort of, um, you know, began building up this secret society that's now quite large and powerful. Yeah, there's more myth-making for us to do here. I, I'm thinking that maybe now I, I don't want to do this today for this episode because we have other interstitials to cover, but that we probably should game out this part because it will help us make the all of the scenes <laughs> involving Altoff, the club, in our story, which is many of the scenes, I think, you know, feel more fleshed out because... Yeah, if things like the three trials originate in something that the founder did from the very beginning, I mean, that seems like that would be something we'd want to know and figure out. Um, right. So, right. so yeah. So, I, and some of this stuff certainly might not have to be an interstitial because it will, yeah, it'll just feed into how we write the many Altoff club scenes that we have. Right. It'll just be right. Background right. Yeah. Lore. Yeah. I mean, another thing that we'll do once we have like a first draft is probably do a certain amount of policing for redundancy and make sure we're not doing too many things like over again. But yeah, there'll be more than one place where we can probably a- accomplish that. But I think I, you know, and this whole story might end up being Saba's story rather than one of the interstitials, but I have a feeling that we might want to cover at least some of it um, as like a straight history. Um, all right, so that's the first one of these. Should we jump into the second one, which is the the Great Transition? Yeah, and this is the one that I think um, initially really sold at least me on this idea of doing these interstitials. 
uh, was that I really wanted somewhere in the book to dramatize the way this constellation begins, right? right. With people like you and I uh, somewhere in the 2020s living out uh, what appears to be a normal non-simulated life. Right. And then all of a sudden waking up inside the constellation in this very abrupt fashion, right. which is, I think, you know, how we could have started our whole book, right? I mean, there's definitely a version of our story that just starts there. Um, but right. we, we never have. really wanted to do that. Yeah, I think for a couple of reasons, one of which is that our story takes place quite a long time after that happened. And then another reason is because I think we enjoy kind of dropping you into this weird place and letting you figure it out through the interactions of the of the people there. Um, but that's right. I think we at some point jumping back to say, oh, by the way, this is how the transition happened. Uh, this is how one person experienced it. And that generalizes somewhat, uh, I think is a really solid idea storytelling wise and will be a very exciting thing to read. Yeah. And we can show somebody, I think literally a few panels, uh, or even a page before, Right, whatever it is that they're doing, right? right. Whether they're asleep in bed right. or they're shopping at a grocery yeah. store. Um, you know, we'll have to go back and listen to some of those previous episodes where we really tried to like pick apart how this would play out. Um and show them uh yeah, like suddenly realizing that they're on a, a Serengeti, which we decided the default home world is sort of this, you know, this uh, like yeah, sort of savannah. Um, uh, locale. Yeah, it's like there, there's like a there's like a, a yeah there's like a a plane. There's and a plane, a, like a tree, a, a tree with fruit and a and a babbling brook or something like it's sort of how you imagine some sort of primitive paradise to be. Right, an idyllic place for like a you know generic human creature. Of, of yeah, like a homeless a habitat a homo for sapiens. Homo sapiens that that you that know, like a computer or an alien could have generated, not knowing that much about like modern culture necessarily but just having like a general idea of like where did homo sapiens generally live in its history <laughs> you know right uh, yeah because we talked about how like it could be a how like a modern house or something right and certainly people would build houses i mean that's very easy to do with the exec but we thought the default thing should be a little bit more intentionally sort of natural and primitive than that to kind of be more of a blank slate basically. And not only are you transported to this weird idyllic landscape, but you have this sort of uh, voice of God speaking in your head, which is the the exec, the uh, personal assistant that everyone has access to. Right. Yeah. And exec is still what we're calling that. That, is, that word is not maybe a hundred percent certain, but we're still calling exec. We're going to keep using that for now. And that's the, uh, you know, the assistant software, like, like you said, that, um, allows you to manipulate your environment and to do things like negotiate contracts. So basically doing all the like low level access that you have um, with this system is all, is all negotiated through this voice interface with the, uh, with the exec. And uh, I think seeing someone figure that out for the first time, like figure out that they can say, build me a house and this thing will do it. Right. But also, figuring out that they can ask this thing, you know, where's my family? And that this thing can tell them there's another world with their families in. Just <laughs> seeing someone learn all of this, all of the weird rules of, of the constellation 
for the first time, I think is going to be dramatically interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we can see some of the ways it goes well and possibly some of the ways it goes poorly. Because remember, some people don't figure out that they can, for example, call up their family so they get, you know, caught in some cult or otherwise taken advantage of. Um, We'll talk more about that in a little while. Uh, So then the next one, number three, is talking about the story of Lester. So we've discussed... um, We've discussed Lester and Lesterism before. This is a character who um, is known for having sort of the best um, example dialogues with the exec that people sort of learn from. And um, Lester himself is gone from the world. We don't ever meet him. uh, No one knows where he is. But he's a sort of a mythical character um, and his dialogues are like published and recopied throughout all these different worlds and locations. So we could see um, something that's either like a more of a, almost like a bit, you know, like a Bible story, like a dramatization of the liturgical text, the dialogue, you know, um, with all of the sort of implied um, embellishment and stuff that that would come with, you know, Um or we could do something that's more like the objective story of Lester, and we just actually really see what happened to Lester, this man who then later is sort of lionized and turned into a mythical character. I think either of those is potentially interesting. Right, and in some ways this overlaps with the previous idea, because a lot of these dialogues would happen in that original homeworld. Fairly early, um, yeah, that's right. Uh, when, when so maybe it is that, Lester who we end up, Maybe we do combine them, and Lester is the one who we see transitioning. That's not impossible. It's one of the options. We could, we could combine them. The, the The reason I would lean against that is because they're so, in a way, they're totally different angles on that scenario, right? Because like the one, one, the first one that I'm really interested in seeing is how an ordinary person responds, right? Right, right, right. But the the story or myth of Lester, depending on whether you think it's true or not, is somebody who's somehow extraordinary in their like dialogue uniquely the suited to like using the exec system in like a really uh efficient way uh, like figures thing truths out then that maybe people still don't know if they're not part of lesterism right right um, right it's one of the first people to sort of discover many fundamental truths of the constellation, which is also a, a good chance for us to expose some of those fundamental truths in a very clear and straightforward way. Um, also, he was of this sort of Socratic mindset of like, let's have a conversation and like explore this thing, like, which you got to assume a fair number of people would react that way. Sure. But also many, many people would not. Correct. Right. I, it's, Correct. Uh, I could see myself maybe, you know, after I over, you know, like got through the initial shock and terror of things being totally different, uh, you know, maybe eventually settling into let's let's explore how this thing works like it's a computer, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, but yeah, this is somebody who who handled it that way. And and I think but I think probably- Lester maybe more than you or I might ex- think of this thing as a computer, but maybe he thought of it a little bit more like a person or a god or something. And anyway, he he manages, no matter how he thinks of it, he manages to manipulate it in ways that are clever and revealing. And part of the myth of Lester may be that he 
he somehow transcended the constellation, right? I, I like he may right. Or maybe, That's what I'm saying yeah. about him gone. He's being gone. It's like he's not around anymore. And now maybe he's not around anymore because he's a hermit, or maybe he's not around anymore because he's dead. But some people believe that he's not any- around anymore because he sort of like unlocked the root powers of the constellation by you know hacking his execs so good and he basically transcended this world into the you know whatever the ur world is that the that the simulation machine runs in you know so i mean now that could all again be just religion talking i don't think we're ever going to show anything outside the box but that's the premise of lester yeah and i think what's interesting about this religion and this interstitial if we do it right is it really is on this weird boundary between religion and science right because this idea of sort of having a dialogue with the exec and trying to learn from that experience is it's not quite science exactly but there's definitely like a a sort of scientific curiosity well like you said it's sort of socratic or whatever it's like yeah uh, uh, it's got that classical uh uh sort of approach exactly so there's that whole element to it but i think we also want it you know he's he's larger than life and he is deified in a way that's not super consistent with that other uh sort of humble science worldview so i think it's it's going to be an interesting clash of of flavors here in this like right right yeah like we could potentially even split this into two stories where lester himself is like sort of very scientific and pure and philosophical and then uh, Lester's followers are sort of rabid and <laughs> religious and have sort of misinterpreted him in some way. Or uh, it could be the opposite too, where he's like a crackpot, like religious figure who like, right. and other people smarter than him sort of, you know, like package it in this, uh, you know, sciencey way or yeah, something. Yeah. 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 That could, that could work as well. So, uh, so anyways, that would be, that would be definitely be. And I also, I think, would like to see this probably even though we discussed them back to back in terms of order within the final book. I don't think I'd want to see this Lester interstitial right next to the, the average. Right. Person. Well, cause they may start sort of similarly. So you might want to space those out and have that. Then that way, like the first frame of Lester could be a, a Serengeti frame and you will know just by the, the image of the plane where he is and who, what's going on with him. The fact that he's yeah, out, there's you know? way less to. I think even trying because you've seen that about before. It, yeah, like try if we did try to combine them, I think the challenge we'd have is that there's so much exposition we're trying to do at the same time, and it's almost better to stage them right. Like here's how an average person weathered this weird transition event, right? And now now here's an extraordinary person, and by the time we'll you start get a the little later story, into his story, but you'll you'll be able to catch you know. up quickly. Yeah, exactly. You get it. Yeah. yeah, that's a good idea. I, I like that. Um, okay, so next one is, and we talked about this uh, a couple of episodes ago as well, is the founding of Agoria. So Agoria is what we used to call Money World, um, and it is a kind of marketplace world that um, over time also became the fundamental sort of currency provider and we talked through this on the podcast before, so you might remember this story. But one thing that we decided was really important about this was at some point when it's becoming more important as a money world, uh, the founder of Agoria would do something sort of symbolic to cement its place. 
And I like the idea of his symbolically giving up his own permission to destroy the world. So basically making this an immortal world basic by saying that nobody, no, you know, no person has the permission to destroy this world, not even the guy who created it. Right. And he might give up his permission to, uh, you know, do certain kinds of things with the currency. Right. To make certain kinds of alterations as well. Yeah. He might lock himself out of the sort of, yeah, currency back end, and he might do so very publicly um, so as to create more trust uh, that this was a place that you could put your money. And it might even be that there was some other previous place that people had put their money that did not do this and that turned into some kind of Ponzi scheme or something. So that might be part of the background conversation in this interstitial. But uh, mainly this would be something that takes place on Agoria and shows its conversion from a marketplace into the world it is now, which is the place where uh, currency is stored and therefore contracts are um, executed in, in most cases. Well, and some of the other other beats that are a part of that mm-hmm. is the sort of organic growth of this thing, right? So if it's right. a marketplace first, uh, it's, it's a place where people essentially are just bartering, right? Exactly. Um, it's like a Craigslist I, of the constellation. Yeah, and it might be pretty old because, I mean, right from the early days, you know, people don't know how the exec works. They don't know, you know, the right commands to give. They don't know. They want to make personal ads. They want to, yeah, they want to learn how to people. um, Build things. uh, Or if they've learned how to build something, they might want to do that for other people in order to, you know, get them to do something for them. But yeah, but money is kind of not an easy thing to concoct unless you're staying in the same world with someone. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, if you're still hopping from world to world, which I think is the default, especially in the early days, right? It isn't until later in our timeline that people really start consolidating into Well, cause most worlds. worlds just aren't built out enough to be like a whole life at that point. Right. Yeah. So since you can't take stuff, there's no interworld like data exchange, right? You can't right. really like have a money that spans worlds. So that's, you know, it would just be essentially a a market where you'd go to barter for things. Um, and you pretty much have to like do all the barter like right away right. or right there. But people are going to want to time shift that and they're going to want to, you know, have a currency. So over time, you know, you would imagine that they would start using something that is already on the world as some kind of currency. Um, and eventually that, that, gets- that might like some version of that might start really early on. Right. Sure. Um, some kind of credit system some kind of tokens or something. or something. And they have to create, you know, persistent accounts in order for that to work. And then once they have persistent accounts, then, you know, it starts to be uh, an infrastructure you can use for money anywhere because you can leave your money there and go to other worlds. That's right. So some something about this founder is that, you know, he's it's of uh, of Agoria. He's ex- uh, extraordinary in the sense of just building this infrastructure too, right? There's got to be, um, you know, they have some sort of talent for maybe finding people. I mean, they run a marketplace world, right? A lot of talent's going to run through there. Um, like, but finding people that can really grow this thing and like turn it into, you know, the, the currency that the whole constellation uses maybe not the whole constellation but like a big portion of well at first people that are at first i think it's it's probably competing with a couple of other startups but i think what gives it the edge is this sort of symbolic move and maybe some kind of scandal that happens with one of their competitors 
that makes people extra afraid of the places that have not, you know, symbolically given up their power. And so maybe that's what, you know, pushes it over the edge into being one of the sort of few standards. Uh, maybe there's not, maybe it's not one standard, but it's the one standard we're going to see in our story. So it's going to feel like the one now standard. Now I've noticed yeah. that three out of the four interstitials we've talked about so far, and yeah. this might just be an accident of how they're grouped, have been founding tales. Yeah, right? yeah, no, I think a lot of this is history of uh, foundings of various things. the founding of Altaf, the yep. founding of Lesterism, and the founding now of Agoria. Right. Uh, and and so, while the second one is not a founding, it is the first day in the in the in the simulation. So it's it, it's not exactly a founding, but it's also a first thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, these are all similarities that I don't think that that's necessarily a problem. Although when we're sequencing, no, them, I'm just noting about that. it. Yeah. I mean, when I when I mean the thing about that is you could also lean into that. You could say like, what's you going to unite all the interstitials? Is there all foundings of different uh, different organizations? You know, that, we could do that on purpose. Right, right, right. In a way that you can probably s- sort of recast any of these in that light. Actually, we'll see if we can do that as we go on. Uh, okay, so shall we move to the next one? Um, yeah, let's talk about number five, which. Uh, the idea here is that, and we talked about this a bit, is that the constellation, like we said, is clearly some kind of computer system. And some people are going to try to hack it. They're going to test the boundaries um, and try to do something. And one thing we spent a lot of time thinking about was the possibility of trying to chain together worlds to create some kind of supercomputer or simulation within the simulation. And we feel like it might be interesting to dramatize the idea that that won't work. So maybe- That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We spent a lot of energy trying to figure that out, right? Uh, And that explains a lot of the weirder aspects of the constellation that we've had to sort of come to are a result of the makers of the constellation trying to prevent this. Right. right? Of Of us thinking through how the makers would prevent this without- needing really detailed information about what each of the simulated beings is thinking. And one way that they would do that is by kind of, you know, really limiting interworld um, data communication. So because of that, uh, people who are trying to somehow uh, override the limits of the, of the constellation would be trying different methods to try to hack that and get it to break. And um, there could be any reason why they're doing this. They could be sort of playful hackers who are just trying to see what they can do. They could be kind of more greedy hackers who are trying to, you know, um, unlock the sort of, you know, security of the exec and sort of become gods. Um, But at any rate, I think they don't succeed. (laughs) I think this is a story of them trying and failing to hack the constellation because what it actually ends up doing is sort of explicating and... um, and sort of uh, showing all of the various rules that we've put into place to prevent um, recursive supercomputer uh, simulation use uh, within the uh, constellation. Well, there's very simple things that people might try. I mean, even someone like Lester in the very beginning might try stuff like, you know, if you can sort of give this exec instructions and it does what you say, right? Can you just tell it to make a copy of the world I'm in that fits inside my hands or something like weirdly recursive like that, just to right. see what, if that breaks it. Right. Um, and well, you know, and it can respond by making gonna, a yeah. model of the world, but not a copy of it. Right. Like it can probably tell you like, well, I can like simulate, you know, I can give you a model of it. Right. But it's going to be low resolution. 
um, you're not going to be able to. Yeah, but does that model have a model in it? And so, I mean, there's just, you know, things like right. probes you can do to try to, like, break it. And it will, you know, it people are going to hit various walls whenever they try to do these things. And those are the more, like, philosophical ones. But, yeah, the the more advanced ones would involve, yeah, like, chaining worlds together or generating AIs. Somehow trying to and, use human beings to, like, um, jump as quickly as they can between worlds and memorize strings of data, right? And if they can sort of like, oh, that's like what, like we yeah, have one of the grander schemes, right? That's would, like a really grand super scheme, labor intensive, right? super labor intensive, but maybe you get a lot of people to do it. And then you also have like AIs whose job it is to like hear those letters and immediately, you know, uh, transcribe them into a, a computational substrate. And then, you know, you're trying to max out the amount of like simulation, uh, 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 CPU you can get out of each world and um, you know create something large and parallel that way uh, but you know but it hits snags the, 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 the bottlenecks are all built on purpose to make sure that it never runs faster than just whatever you can build inside one world would run um, and so that's uh, a project that fails but that shows that people are clever and they are trying to push at the limits of what this um, system can do uh yeah so that's i mean that's about as much as we have on that one uh the mm -hmm. next one we want to deal with uh one of our favorite constellation religion ideas which is defaultism right um the idea that people this one's not the, a founding yeah it's it's not a founding actually like i obviously there is a founder of defaultism but for whatever reason we're less interested in that and more in the consequences of defaultism defaultism so is more interesting once it's been going for a while so yeah i love this idea of a defaultist parable like a story they tell around the defaultist should we remind people what campfires that is, just in case? the the religion yeah go ahead yeah the, well the concept of defaultism is that whatever the default settings of the constellation are which there have to be right the second you're uploaded there's things are set up a certain way that those are not to be changed because that's the closest anyone has to the will of god right the idea that they have is that the simulators are god they set us up in this simulation for a reason and sure they gave us the ability to change things but they set things up like this for you know because they wanted them like this so we should stay as close to them as we reasonably can. And we like the idea that defaultists are a little bit like, um, they have groups, like there are more orthodox and less orthodox defaultists because like a really truly defaultist stays alone on the Serengeti forever, right? And doesn't change any defaults. But that's too orthodox for most of them. So probably most of them still gather together and live in defaultist worlds, but they just generally leave most of the settings to default level. Well, those worlds still might look like Serengeti-ish, right? Right, but they're but they at least allow people to live on them, and maybe they build houses and stuff. You know, they do some modest, they do some modest changes to a company, you know, society. And they they can't die because death is off, right? And regeneration. Uh, they can't uh, breed because birth control is on, right? Um, they can regenerate because regeneration is on by default, and they feel. Only the mildest of pain, small amounts of pain, right? Uh, just to let you know that something's happening, but because that's all, like basically all the sort of default tame settings um, is is how they live, and you know m a lot of those are generally good settings. Some of the ones I was just describing, right? I mean, other people might want to turn their their birth on, for example, but those other settings seem fairly reasonable. 
Um, so those wouldn't be, I think, the areas where defaultists would most run afoul of non-defaultists. Or, uh, right, right. But it wouldn't be okay for them to, like, um, you know, fly around, for example, or make themselves gigantic, which some people would really want to do. Um, oh, that makes them a bit like uh, the, the naturalists, the uh, the Catalians that we talked about uh, last episode. That's right. They're, they're coming at it from a it a fundamentally different place, right? Correct. Because they think that they're celebrating God by doing this as opposed to fighting against God. Well, naturalists have both a different idea of what the correct settings are and also a different idea of whether they are... Uh, whether the simulators are benevolent or not, right? Because the naturalists have this idea that, right, that the whole world is a some sort of like devilish temptation and that they are supposed to set all, everything to like earth standards and live as if they are on earth because that is what humans are meant for. And this whole thing is like some sort of weird, you know, enchantment. But uh, like where they would, uh, where they would disagree is on death, right? Which is a big one. Right. But, but where they would agree is on conjuring things, right? Right, right, right. Similar. They have similar limits on conjuring things where like defaultists conjure things um, they might conjure things more because it is made possible. Well, by... by default, you can conjure things. So they would conjure things, but they would want to keep their environment as default as possible, right? So they would conjure something to eat, no question. They're not going to worry about conjuring an apple and eating it. But the holiest thing to eat is the initial apples that were there when you first appeared. Absolutely, on the, uh, absolutely. On, but, um, but you know, conjuring a place to live, I feel like, is a little bit... You don't really need that. You're doing that just to remind you of, you know, you're not going to die or feel very much pain if you don't have it. So, you know, th- that's a, like a little bit more of a, a, a little further away from the default. And then co- conjuring like a whole city like Magnerbia would be kind of like, you know, unthinkable to these defaultists. They really would think that that was, uh, you know, people not understanding what the simulators really want from them. Um Defaultists might, you know, although they might congregate, right? They also might be more apt to just maintain their own homeworlds. Well, that's what I was saying. The most orthodox defaultists never see anyone. Well, but but I, I'm saying like a step beyond that, right? Because mm-hmm. then they just literally never see anyone. Is that they see each other, but they really maintain this idea of sure they my return world, to world. their homeworld, which is mostly at the end of the day after service. Yeah, they go back yeah, to yeah. Their I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And like they wouldn't have made very many changes on their homeworld. So even if they go to like a defaultist communal world for like most of their you know social time they still have this like default place that they return to frequently yeah that makes sense yeah which whereas i think over time again a lot of the non-defaultist people have moved to places like magnerbia where they they essentially like they've now made a group home world that they spend all their time in and that would be i think very uh, you know, not to fall, uh, as they yeah, say. Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, okay, but so, we haven't said what the actual uh, no, parable is, so let's do that quickly. Uh, so the idea here is that whatever. Actually, we don't know what the parable is exactly. We don't but know the details. We just like the idea that it is a story about someone who committed some kind of heretical act, somehow broke the defaults, and then uh, was punished for it. That's the basic structure of the of the parable, and we particularly like the idea that the punishment that the heretic gets is that they have to experience mild pain, the mild pain of default forever. So they're like trapped in a world or they're trapped under a rock or something like Prometheus and they can't die and they can't, you know, they're not being tortured horribly, but they're just being in pain. I think the way that we picture this initially Uh 
uh, was that you know you just, if you burn someone at the stake, right, uh, or something like that. I mean, the fire can be you know made to go on forever, I guess, which is not super default. But like the idea is, they're not they can't die, yeah. And then they but like something like a fire, I think, would like produce the constant pain in the in the way. Well, maybe and, what and, maybe what the parable is about is a heretic who creates a eternal flame, right? Like. You could easily conjure a flame that won't go out. Oh, and then they're punished with their and then eternal they're, flame? Yeah, then they're punished by putting it under their toes or something. Um, and they're ma- and they're tied in place there, and it won't kill them, but it will like burn their toe, which will then regenerate over and over again for the rest of time. You know, the other thing that we talked about, too, is that there's like it's, a That's a nice simple one. I like that. Like, when you say, make me a tree, there's like tree that's right like there's the default with, tree and then there's, there's like the custom first tree design in the trees. database right. right there's like the tree that's like id number zero in whatever weird database has been created by this alien intelligence that built this thing so, right so it might just be like the most common tree or it could have just been the random first tree that it happened to pick up we don't even know so obviously defaultist those would be the only trees they'd want right, right? so i could see some dispute or something you know being around somebody it doesn't have to be about trees, but like deviating from a default object too much. Yep. Um, again, if the default fire doesn't go on eternally, then to make one that is eternal would would probably be uh, be bad uh, in this in this society. So, anyways, I mm-hmm. think that's all we have for that, right? I mean, that's a little. That's it. So, it's not we, really, we, a story so much as the the religion. It's itself. a structure for a story, and yeah. So we'll we'll figure out the specifics, but I like the idea of it being a. Uh, Somebody is punished for like making a, a non-default thing, whether it's the eternal fire or not, and then that thing causes them pain. Um, okay, so number seven, uh, th- this one's like a sort of vague idea, but let's talk about this. So we have an idea about a serial killer. That's right, and uh, this is immediately interesting to think about uh, for the same reason that our third trial is interesting to think about in a world where it's hard to die or death is optional. It's very hard to kill people, so and it's very unusual. So people are already fascinated by serial killer stories, uh, and one in a constellation um, seems like it'd be even more compelling. Um, and so we figured the way that this would have to be probably in the early days of the constellation when people are, you know, vulnerable <laughs> because they're not, they don't have the common sense, you know, to how the constellation works to to avoid the the obvious pitfalls. So this would-be serial killer could go around, you know, roaming from homeworld to homeworld, you know, Serengeti to Serengeti, uh, finding people that are shocked and stunned at being, uh, having woken up inside a simulation and uh, just persuading them, you know, like... Uh, just tricking them, I, basically. Yeah, again, imagine that you've you've been teleported into this strange world, none of your friends and family are there, and maybe you're a little slow in the uptake and figuring out, like, how to use the exec or do things. And all of a sudden, a kind stranger appears in there with you. And maybe like a week has gone by and you haven't talked to another human. And you're like, oh, my God, thank you. Do you, what, what? What's going on? Tell me, please. Like, right. this person seems to have all the answers. And they say, OK, well, here's what you got to do. I'm going to take you to safety. Um, I'm going to take you to where. In fact, they could even just say, like, I'm going to take you back to how things were. Right. All you got to do is come with me. Uh, to my home world, sign this and this contract. Oh, don't worry about looking at that. Oh, that you got some warning from your exec. That doesn't mean anything. That's normal. Right. 
um, you know, wave away the, whatever hiccups might happen. Right. And convince somebody to a- agree to be, to trap themselves in a terrible, terrible world. Um, right. Or a world where you then immediately kill them because maybe this is a killer. Right. Yeah. It could be instant death or it could, I mean, it, or you could trap no, you could them, torture them and torture or, them or, yeah, yeah. Or just uh, have them all chained up. So this whole thing could be told by some sort of storyteller. Um, and perhaps the point of this story being told is to warn the crowd about bad contracts. As a, um, this could be a cautionary tale. A cautionary right? tale that's that's shared throughout the constellation. It could be something that Zoya was told as a kid. It could be that something that like every school kid learns in the constellation. Um, and you know, this is what I think is interesting. I will say that I have a little hesitation about having a killing in our story that's not our main killing, and that being like maybe not. Well, not the best thing to do for the whole book so that's something i'm a little hesitant it about. does it does teach a lot of those it does in a way it could be used in a positive way though to set up our main murder though because this really establishes a lot of the difficulties in the no rules. i get that i think it also makes it a little less special though so i don't know i'm i'm a little i have a little bit of hesitation about this one and and since we do have more than we need i i think this one might be the one that's First on my list to cut uh, when we do need to cut, but I do think it's interesting. Oh, and, interesting! I don't think uh, it would be first on my list currently. But um, um. well, anyway, just thought I'd share that. But uh, you know, I, I think there's there might be a way to do it where it doesn't, where this aspect of it doesn't bother me. I think, but uh, it'd be something I'd be somewhat concerned about. I guess if we were trying. Um, okay, so then the next one is the rivalry tale of the two great city worlds, Magnerbia and Apita Premia. So uh, these two worlds are like the Coke and Pepsi, New York and Los Angeles of um, of the constellation. They have, over the 75 years of constellation, they have grown into massive uh, societies that are pretty much self-contained The people, not that people don't ever leave them. They pop in and out like anybody, but they spend lots of times there. Big families live there. Large enclaves are there creating, you know, recreating various cultures and, and, uh, innovating new ones. Um, so the, the, the tale of these two cities that we would tell in this interstitial bit would be a kind of almost like, very wide view, I think, of what had gone down, um, almost like a newsreel or like a, a documentary style uh, content that that makes sense that would be in world media, some some propaganda made by one of the cities or something like that to tell a story of like kind of like the pride of these wealthy factions, almost like a big game, a big high stakes game where these two cities were rivals to try to attract the most amount of people and the most amount of development and just be the best place. And, uh, well, yeah. And one, one thing I think is, uh, interesting about this rivalry, uh-huh. right. Is that, you know, we don't quite have the right metaphor for it even because on one end you have a rivalry between two actual cities like New York and LA say, which people will sometimes move back and forth between. Right. 
Um, but there's still quite a bit of friction to moving from New York to LA, even though they are in the same country. And sure, you know, absolutely. You have to a like get a new bed and yeah, drive across yeah, the country. Uh, yeah. Get new friends. So that's like on one end. And sure. then on the other end, you have something like, I don't know, like like operating system wars. Like, I don't know, do you use Android or iOS? Right, right, right. How hard is it to switch between those? Well, it's not that big a deal to switch to another operating system, although it is a pain in the ass enough that people rarely do it. And this, I feel like, sort of falls between those two, right? It's uh, right. It has some of the more, network effects of yeah. like a Facebook or or a iOS uh, versus Android kind of thing. Of like, once you get settled somewhere, rebuilding those relationships and rebuilding that collection of sort of setups and softwares can be a pain in the butt. But, right, but it's but it's more frictionful than that, and less less. There's less friction than in the city example. Absolutely, it's sort of like perfectly between in my head, and that I think is kind of interesting. <laughs> right, uh, right, right. Yeah, it has some aspects of the city thing because like your your friendships definitely you'll have to like sort of rebuild because uh, people spend so much time in these places. Um, but. Yeah, but you, the moving is obviously much easier, and and there's no economic aspect of it. So, in a little way, in some ways, it's a little bit like um, sports teams or school pride, or like you know having a kind of you know feeling of ownership of this of this collective project that you've joined, even if you have not that much like influence on it. Um, but and it's it's a little bit low stakes because they're really just competing for people and if they don't get the people it's not like they stop existing or anything they just get a little bit less cool that year that's the other part where this is very much like it weirdly in the middle of like other metaphors i could think of right because it's right. it's far lower stakes than an actual you know from the perspective of the people running the cities i mean it's far lower stakes than an actual uh, well, war between uh, you know a duopoly inside of a capitalist structure where two businesses are really going at it. It's far lower stakes than that, um, but it's also it's still reasonably high stakes, right? Because we are still talking about um, well, it's kind biggest... of cutthroat. We're talking about right because and I think that's where it's more like almost like sports teams or something because like that's inherently low stakes. Like all you're gonna do is win or lose a game, but it's I mean, higher stakes than sports teams. I think still it's like, that's where but, I'm sort of saying it's sort of in the middle. Cause I don't think it's, um, it is still like, you know, to the extent that again, people value things we've talked about in the past, like attention and power and status. This is still such a confluence of those things. Right. Because um, you can, they, uh, yeah. associate yourself with the city you live in. So you want the city you live in to sort of win, the competition and be the best city, you know. And I'm talking about from the perspective of the people waging the war, right, the right, cities, right, right. And they they want right they want their own people to be enthusiastic about their cities because that's going to drive the kind of growth that makes them win. So that's the sort of right. So and eventually, I think you know part of the funny thing about this tale is that eventually this rivalry just sort of burns itself out, right? Like it's not so much that one vanquishes the other as that like eventually one gives up after a while because. Um, one gets a lead over the other one and it doesn't look like it's really surmountable and it stops being a fun game for the, for the wealthy, um, like rulers of these places to play against each other. And so they just sort of, you know, they just sort of end the rivalry at a certain point. Um, Right, and that's the part that again I don't think you'd ever see between like two giant mega corporations or something like like competing with each other, right? Whereas which is that one like 
sort of like unilaterally kind of gives up based on the leadership. That seems like almost impossible for that to happen. Right, um, right. Whereas like in the constellation, it almost again, feels inevitable. Like at yeah. a certain point, that's what's going to happen. So it, I think that's fun. And I think that's like a really different kind of tale. It's not an origin and it's not a, um, it doesn't have the same, it's not parable, but it's kind of just like an interesting tale from the history of the constellation that tells you a little bit about why Magnerbia is the way it is. Uh, but also mostly I think gives you like a sense of how this is really a different society. That's not just like, you know, um, the internet, but with better avatars or something. Um, the last one is, you know, is maybe the most tangentially related to anything that happens in our a storyline. Agreed. Yeah. But it is, uh, an interesting, uh, rules corner case that we uncovered in sort of inventing this constellation universe, right? Which is that we needed to address the problem of animals, you know, and non-humans, right? Where, where did they go? Uh, you know, are whoever created the constellation were they obsessed with just humans? They could have been, right? So they only uploaded humans, uh, and they just sort of ignored all the other life forms on planet Earth, right? Uh, but we decided that we wanted them to be a little more objective and alien seeming than than being purely obsessed with humans that they also would have uploaded all the other organisms seems like if you're doing a whole scan you may as well yeah and treated them in roughly the same way so if what they did with humans is gave each human their own home world uh with access to a personal assistant um and like a nice habitat that could sustain them and keep them alive that then, of course, they would do that for a dog as well, right? They would uh, create a natural habitat for that dog. Right. Um, they might give the dog... Uh, and this is where it gets weird, right? Because dogs can't use language the same way as humans to, say, uh, instruct a personal assistant to create a milk bone for them out of thin air. So Correct. The, the way we sort of eventually solved this problem was we decided that they all, all these animals have access to an exec... Uh, of some kind, but the only way you can communicate with an exec, as we've established, is through communication that's sufficiently unambiguous and clear. Right, right. And most animals and simpler life forms can't manage that. They can think preferences at some sort of chemical level, right? Right. Uh, they can, but they, you know, very rarely can they express, like, complicated things. I, they can express simple things like, ow, I don't like that. I think... sure many that's easy for say a dog to express right um but they can't say you know conjure me a specific object right 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 Um, it doesn't seem like uh animal cognition allows them to do that in a way that would be unambiguous to our human facing exec i mean you know we talked about this and it's possible that there's some animal facing exec but that presupposes like a, a level of understanding of animals that the simulation creators have that we do not have. And I feel like that's opening a a can of worms. We don't want to open. So basically, you know, the dog exists, it's there in the world. And, um, you know, it doesn't have to be human specific. It just has to be like sort of symbol has to like have like symbolic communication as its core. Right. 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 The extent that an animal can, can use symbolic communication in a clear, unambiguous fashion. Right. So we talked about with a monkey, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I'm saying a monkey, but like, I mean like a higher ape, you know, like a chimpanzee or a gorilla can be taught, you know, um, 
uh, not technically a monkey, but you know, uh, colloquially call it a monkey. Uh, they can be taught sign language. They can be taught uh, communication strategies that are, um, you know, near to, if not quite at human level. And they could definitely express the kind of um, preference like um, show me a banana or, you know, or even like I want my mother. Like those are things that like a monkey, uh, a higher ape could actually express, I think, to a, re- you know, to a reasonable level of non-ambiguity to where an exec would be able to figure it out. Uh, now, some of the other rules that are important to know here are that by default, uh, peop- your worlds are public, so people can come in and out of them. Right. Um, that's how without your permission. That's how that other story works of the uh, the sort of grifters showing up. So people can. It's like kind of like uh, you know the way that the robocalls call you. They can spoof your number. They can uh, or not spoof it, but they can uh, you know they can uh, uh, derive your number. They can guess your number with a random number generator, and then they they call a number, and somebody picks up, and it's you. Right, or just like you know, go through the, a phone book, or just dial a random number, like you said. Yeah, that's right. So, so you can go and visit the monkey on the monkey's private world, or visit your your pre-transition dog. Right, like if uh, you can describe your pet to the exec, then the exec can find the pet's world and take you to it. So you can you can visit it, but once you're in that world, you can't make changes because that world belongs to that dog or that monkey. Right. Again, you only have the default privileges unless the admin says otherwise. So, And the admin in this case is an animal. <laughs> so it can't express to the exec that it wants to give you privileges. So you are stuck with no privileges being able to visit your dog in your dog's sort of semi-dog paradise, but... Um, you can't take it with you, for example. Right. And that's the core tension that's going to make this a story. I think we, we sort of are not settled on whether it's a dog or a monkey. There's a reason we keep using those examples in particular. Um, you know, is it, but this basic tension of you can visit an animal, but you can't take the animal out of the world. Correct. Right. So whether it's a, a pet owner trying to rescue their pet, uh, or whether it's someone, we pictured more almost like a Jane Goodall type or someone who's interested right. in, in liberating Some kind of naturalist, uh, like the, the real meaning of that word, like, uh, you know, scientist who who studied um, apes or something like that. Like mixed with someone who's got a bit of a, you know, a, a real goal that they think they're going to they're gonna rescue these animals in some senses. You know? Right, right. Um, because, I, I don't know, they, I mean, one thing that's, that maybe the creators of the constellation got a little wrong is that um, all of these animals are in these sort of an- atomized. Correct. Like it's a lot of animals are social. Exactly. So, I mean, humans, I mean, monkeys humans, and dogs yeah. are all social animals. And so putting them alone in their own world um, is, is a little cruel, a little bit cruel, except that if it's a human, it can ask to leave or ask to visit other people or ask to create, AI companions, which is something we haven't talked that much about. But one of the things we could do if we do the dog story or the monkey story is we could do, you know, the person who misses their monkey can create an AI version of the monkey um, to hang out with. Um, right. Or, or that uh, that makes a lot of sense uh, in, the, or in, for the, the dog. in the dog example, right? Yeah. Like 
Like if you or I, you know, were in the constellation, uh, you know, our dogs would be off in some world that we couldn't get the dog out of. Right. I don't know how I could convince my dog to uh, say I, I want because you somehow you got to get this creature to express the idea of I want to leave this world. Right? right. 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 That's complicated. So yeah, but you could also live on Magnurbia and you know ask the exec to conjure a copy of your dog. Now this is where. You know, we haven't quite established like how well these sort of fake animals function. Right. Well, so we've um, said in the past that our AI has limits. There is AI. You can create AI humans and AI animals. Um, and you can do a certain amount of like high level programming to them, like make them love candy or, you know, simple things like that. But they are limited and they don't quite convince. And I think with humans, it's pretty easy to understand what that means. But with animals, it's a little harder. So like... You know, animals are pretty inscrutable um, for the most part. And this animal would be a good copy of your, you know, pet. It would have the same genetic information. It would be running that information on the uh, the substrate of the, uh, of the constellation. It might not know every trick your pet has ever learned, but it would probably learn the tricks in a similar way. Um but, you know, uh, your pet has had the experiences it's had and it's shaped it in whatever way. And you wouldn't exactly see all of that. Plus, I think it would be a little bit rigid compared to even uh, a simple uh, uh, animal. So, um, you know, we want to show that. We want to show that it's somewhat limited, that this is not necessarily... I mean, this is a, a feature of the constellation. Obviously, they don't have to limit the intelligence because they're running all of these emulated brains and those are running fine. So they have the power to do so, but there is a, you know, the, there is a sort of way that the simulation is pushing you against relying exclusively on AI uh, companionship. Right. It does seem like, you know, maybe this is more of a justification for including this interstitial if we work this part in, because right. I do think this is exposition that we need to get in somehow, which is that you can't clone people or animals right in the constellation you can't wholesale create not completely minds right um you can create an an ai clone of your dog but it's going to be it's going to be gonna different be an AI. it's going to be a different dog that is roughly similar to your dog rather than being like um a copy of that dog's mind file right like i think yeah if you literally were to say make me a copy of rover it will say like that's not allowed right like it just like full stop, you cannot copy individuals, but you're like, okay, make me a dog. Oh, make it shorter, make it brown. Or even like uh, make me a dog and base it entirely on Rover's DNA. I think it can even do that. It just can't make the dog know everything Rover knows and have Rover's mind. Well, I was starting to right? think maybe, maybe you couldn't do that DNA thing. Like, right. Like, I don't know. Cause this is where drawing this boundary is something we never quite figured out. And it's very tricky. Right. Um, cause we need a, we need a clear answer here. We right. don't need, well, one. it needs I mean, to we be able to sample it, bit, it from but... the original data of the world. So it can't be a dog that was like dead long before the scan happened. I don't think, but if it was like an, like it has to have your DNA. We talked about this in order to like generate a body for you. Right. So I feel like it does have access to the right, DNA that was around you, at the It has access to it, but it world it's not going to give you control over it. Right, because that's the slippery slope that allows you to then, you know, I see. So you're create saying a clone like, army. Well, why don't you just create me? Uh, 
Well, I think you could create a clone body from like any random person's DNA and then have that animated by an AI intelligence that's limited. But it absolutely is not going to allow you to create like a full working clone. Of, well, it could be localized uh, to just the brain, right? It could just be just the the mind file, which we've established is like kind of we're treating as like a separate entity. Right. Um, so, yeah, maybe physically. Uh, but it should be able to grow you a genetically similar body because I feel like we've already established it does that. And, you know, as far as like how proprietary it is about do you only have access to your own DNA or do you have access to your pet's DNA or like to a random stranger's DNA, I feel like if it's just for making a body, it's probably not going to default to very you know, good security. And you probably like, if I wanted to like make a body out of Hitler's DNA, I guess Hitler's not a good example because there's not an example in this world, but let's say uh, Donald Trump's DNA. And I wanted to fill it with, uh, you know, with a dumb uh, intelligence so I could punch it. Like, I think it would make that for me. I feel like I could get it to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm willing to grant, okay. Like the physical part, you can do everything right. So the bottleneck, let's say it's at the mind, right? Yeah. 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 Definitely. But like, I, I would be down with saying, because we never really totally f- figured this out, what if you just couldn't shortcut the mind stuff at all, like, right? Like, you can't say, like, make it act like a dog, because that's too vague and too, like, much just, like, trying to imitate the, you know, the original mind file, right? Like, Right, like, right, right. You could, well, let's say, like, you know, it would allow, it would have, like, an AI creation engine that you could sort of play with that would but would it that's that's kind of what i'm saying that in i I, i'm proposing a little more of a radical restriction than we've talked about so this is new i'm just saying okay so what do you say so like let's say i wanted to create just like a a ai companion like an ai butler how would that work with your restriction that you're proposing i just want to make sure i understand it well you could create a mannequin that looked like a butler sure and you could uh make it walk to different locations by telling it to do so uh-huh um and you could say oh at four o'clock every day i want it to walk from here to here and carrying a plate of food to me and like putting it down and then walking away but i'm saying you have to like literally do the commands. but you couldn't tell it like um you know Act generally like butlers act or something. Exactly, because like that. that's way too unambiguous and like sure. wait, and like maybe it would tolerate that kind of stuff. In terms of like physical things, more it would be have like, it might be a little bit more tolerant in in other areas, but in this area that's like very dangerous, right? Where they don't want to allow you to. So uh, like, what if I wanted it to be able to speak to me though? Like, could I just tell it uh, make it able to speak to me, or do I have to like? you know, invent a, like, teach it language one word at a time. Like, when I say, come, this mannequin should walk toward me, kind of thing, unless it is going to injure itself, you know, sort of like, do I have to well, give it those Well, because it would still have, like, you know, it would still be, like, the most advanced programming environment ever, right? So, like, you would be able to say things... Like, you know, if you say something that means come in any sense, right? And it would be able to, like... I see. So you'd be able to handle, like, this, like, right, right, advanced language processing. So you'd be able to be like, all right, so, you know, anytime I express something that seems unambiguously like I want it to come toward me, it should come toward me. 
Right. And you could probably even give that command in a slightly more casual way. Sure. And it would, it would, it would, you know, again, uh, it would figure that out. But I guess I'm just saying that you have to do a lot of low level work, right? So the AIs basically they don't have a lot of modules, is what we're saying. They don't have a lot of like you can't just e easily, small. yeah, you can't just easily call on it to be like, all right, so just load up like a policeman module and then modify it to be less racist, you know, or something like, <laughs> right? Like, you know, like it doesn't work like that. It's like because you could you could imagine that it might like simplify a lot of concepts out of you know, and then like have them available as sort of you know, modules that you could link together, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe, maybe we're thinking of maybe part of its limitation uh, in trying to make sure that you don't create a super intelligence within its, its walls is that, you know, all of the AI routines that you have available to you, you have to like specify them fairly clearly. Yeah. And I don't think that breaks any of our story. No, we barely use AIs, honestly. I mean, they're yeah, just like they're just like clerks and stuff. I mean, we're well, barely. Well, the using alternate them explanation is that we have sort of AIs that you can conjure with very a very simple library, but something's off about them. And figuring out what that thing is that's off about them has always been a challenge, right? So we can kind of avoid that. Right, right, right. Say, this will lead to no, certain you, things being yeah. off about them, like naturally. Yeah. Yeah, you you people programmed them from scratch, so that doesn't mean when you go to the lobby of Altov, there can be a pretty convincing like for a moment ai work in the lobby that you know because the altoff is powerful they've created something that's like pretty effective and right. has a lot of commands sure but all those commands were put there painstakingly by somebody or by somebody um, is right like yeah, yeah like a team of people over time yeah that makes sense and i like the idea that that naturally leads them to be pretty brittle and it's not that they are unpowerful per se it's just that there is no like AI application programming interface basically that's been like opened up. So you have to like build all your sh stuff from scratch. Uh, right. And, and that's really what makes it so limiting in a way is just that you have to like invent everything. And that's sort of where Lester comes in, right? Cause he's the one who starts to realize how to do that and starts to give people the idea that that can be done. Um, so, all right, well, that's good. We got through, our interstitial ideas um this was fun to talk through them yeah i mean this was uh a bit like one of our earlier episodes where we're just still a little bit riffing on these concepts but i think somewhere in this list of nine things is the six or seven we actually need so right I and guess, some of these other ideas yeah. will probably find their way into dialogue or into some other little details somewhere um, but it's nice to be able to see that we have a lot of options and we can sort of see as we're going through and actually writing the script, um, how, uh, you know, where we want to put them and how they might fit in. Yeah. I think the, the next question that we maybe shouldn't answer now is, um, how are we going to handle the writing of these things practically? Right. Are we going to just completely ignore this for the timing while we write our a story uh you know since these things are modular and don't affect the a story directly or are we just gonna try to put these in whatever form we can right there in that initial draft hoping that 
Because I, I, I could see an argument for both, right? It's like this is an easy thing to make a first draft less daunting by just ignoring. Mm-hmm. But it's also the idea that we would involve these earlier in the process might be good for the book overall because, you know, then then this gets as many rewrites as the other things. It's not something that gets put in later. Yeah, I don't think we should put it off stuff. too long for that reason. I think, you know, I would vote for either doing them all at once or doing the first draft without them and then having putting them in be the first task of the second draft really because uh, the one advantage of doing the draft without them is that then when we slot them in we kind of know what our ins and outs tentatively are for the scenes around them and that Mm -hmm. would help to write them because that might help yeah you know come up with a cool image to start and end on that like reflects where we're coming from or where we're going or something like that um i i agree with you though that we don't want to put off doing this too long because we want them to be outside the story but inside the flow of reading the book right i mean like we talk you know the alan moore uh watchman example is the one we used before i think that's the best example for like how we want these to work and those always come at a great moment and they always have some thematic resonance with what's going on, even though they're really quite outside, um, in some cases, the main story. Um, so yeah, I, I, I definitely think we should integrate these sooner rather than later. Um, but I think I would maybe vote for doing one pass through the script before we integrate them. Um, well, I guess that'll be the, the tentative plan then. And, yeah. uh, so next time I have nothing specific to tease for you except that the writing actually begins so maybe that's maybe that's yeah well we'll we'll be back with we'll be back with more content and hopefully we will be getting into the script this has been constellation making the graphic novel our theme song is pomona by audios to subscribe to this podcast look us up on itunes or your favorite podcatcher application you can find us on twitter or on the web at constellationpodcast.com thanks for listening Thank you.